Luke 11, 1 through 13 is where we will be this morning. I'll read the passage in its entirety, and then we will pray. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And will he answer him from within? Do not bother me, for the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because of it, he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, your, will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who asks, ask Him? Father, we confess that our view of you is often clouded by our own sin, and we interpret your fatherly love to to us through the lens of our flesh or our experiences. So I pray that you would use this text and the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ to transform and reform our thinking about you at the level of our hearts and in our minds. And I pray that we would faithfully pray. May we be found to be a praying church for your glory, for the sake of the fame of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This is the second sermon in a two-part series on prayer. And you can just bank on the fact that every 18 months or so, you're going to get two to three sermons on prayer. I think it is that significant to the life of a church that we be a praying church. But I want to pick up where we left off last week with the gospel. In the message that we preached, uh, that we heard together that I preached last week, Uh, We talked about adoption, and adoption being the focal point of our confidence in praying. And as Paul says to the Corinthians, I would remind you of the gospel. I think we need to be reminded of the gospel as well. And I would argue, I think I can argue this biblically, 
that when we are lazy in our prayer, when we don't pray as we ought, it's because fundamentally something is off in our understanding of the gospel. Maybe we lack confidence. And if that's the case, we need to be reminded of our place being adopted of God. And I would say it does no good to talk about method or priorities in prayer or to remind you that we ought to pray if our heart is not settled in the gospel. You know, even most unbelievers, when tragedy strikes in their life, they will hope or wish that there is a God who listens. You'll hear people who have not lived their life for the Lord in any respect say things like this when tragedy strikes. We just need a miracle. And they'll ask people to pray. And in those moments of darkness, there there is some sense of hope that there is a God who can answer and deliver us. You may not feel it when you see others suffering, but when it is you, and when it is your son or daughter, or loved one on death's door, then you hope that there is a benevolent and kind God who just may answer and help you in your awful situation. You, friend, may very well be on the brink of losing everything and not even know it. You are one decision or phone call away from everything being taken away. I'm not trying to cause you any undue anxiety, but understand that that is the truth about your life. And even if you don't face unusual tragedy in your life, you will inevitably face death. There you will be. Maybe you don't picture it often, maybe you do. In a bed or on the floor or in a crushed vehicle, knowing that you only have a few moments left. And because of sin, friend, brother, sister, you and I have a death problem. What will be your resolve in that moment? What will your confidence be? Will it be yourself? Will it be your track record? Will it be your knowledge or how you think the world works? What does this have to do with the gospel? And what does this have to do with prayer? Consider this. Why, if there is indeed a Lord of the universe possessing all power and goodness, why should He answer you in your hour of need? What would draw the hand of heaven, the power of God, to assist you in those moments? To help you as you move from this life to whatever is next, why should the God who is there, if there is a God who is there, why should He listen to you in that moment? You have sinned. I have sinned. If there is a Lord of all the universe, then He deserves and is owed all of my obedience and love and service and I have lived for myself and not honored Him as He deserved. Why should He listen to me? David says this in Psalm 34, When the righteous cry for for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Here's the problem, friends. Neither you nor I are righteous. We are sinners. Why should the Lord even answer our cry? Why should His benevolent will ever extend to us selfish, evil 
rebels, even if it is in our hour of need. There is a way to be forgiven and to be counted righteous in God's eyes, which is the only evaluation that matters. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as Paul reminds them in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you of the Gospel. This forgiveness of sins and being counted righteous through trust in Jesus, which is the only way to be counted righteous, that is the only basis on which the Lord would answer your cry for mercy or help or anything, because otherwise you're His enemy. But He, in His great love and grace, has made it possible to be counted righteous, considered righteous in Him. Not because you're a good person. Not because you're a good employee. Not because you're a good American citizen. Not because you're a good son or daughter or husband or wife. Not even because you're a good church member. But because you trust in Jesus through faith alone. It is God who makes us righteous through trusting in Christ's death. So in those moments, whatever it is, whenever it comes, how do you plead? What is your confession? Why should the God of the universe answer your cry for mercy? I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. No prayer or piety will do you any good on the day of trouble unless you are found to be righteous. And only trusting in Christ fully can make you so. And if that is your confession, then brothers and sisters, your prayers are answered on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not yours. So your boldness in prayer should be based on the fact that Jesus deserves answers from God. And if you're in Him, that is is the quality of your own prayers as well. That is the basis of our confidence to approach God's throne. We must be rooted in the Gospel in order to have any desire to pray at all. So now we come to our text. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught His disciples. I want you to consider first The ministry of John. Part of the evidence of authentic ministry here, I think it's pretty clear, is that it teaches people to pray and leads them to desire to pray more. This is part of the preparatory work of John the Baptist, that he primed the pump, as it were, for the ministry of Jesus. And the disciples see in John's ministry and the way that he teaches his disciples, and they want more of the same from Jesus. That is the quality of authentic ministry. If there is a ministry or an outlet or, or a church or any type of nonprofit organization that doesn't have in some way a focus of leading us to pray more and leading us to acknowledge our dependency on God, lead us more to petition Him for His answers, for His mercy, for His saving work, then it's not really legitimate ministry. It is well noted... Uh, yet always bears reminding that the disciples never asked Jesus to teach them anything else using that specific language. Think of all the other things that they could have asked Jesus to teach them. I don't know, how to preach, maybe? How, uh, maybe more theology? 
Lord, help us untangle the Trinity. Maybe how to work miracles. I don't know. If, if I were there, I'd say, hey, Jesus, you know that, that thing where you turn the five loaves and the two fish enough to feed 5,000? I'd like to learn how to do that. But they don't ask him for any of those things. Teach us to pray. Because even as Paul confesses, as we talked about last week, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Even though we've received the Spirit, we have adoption for in Christ, we still don't yet know what to pray for as we ought. So they, they, in some sense, sense their inadequacy as even his followers. We don't know how to pray. I mean, we can go out at the, as the 72 or sit out. We can cast out demons. We can work miracles. All this kind of stuff. But we, we need to know how to pray. There's an interest in them in learning how to pray. And if you just look around at what churches typically market and how they try to appeal to people, you notice a stark difference. There are endless conferences on marriage and finances. Different theological focuses. Different things to prioritize in the life of church, outreach, mission. Rarely ever do you see a conference on prayer. Rarely ever does a church market itself as we're a praying church. Maybe that would be boastful, but typically what they hold out as come to this thing is not a prayer meeting. And if it is, it's typically distorted by all sorts of things. We need to learn how to pray. One of our professors, Beth and I both took classes from, Dr. Birch, he had this illustration that he would hand out at the beginning of the semester, and it was of a hand. And you had a finger here, the, the, the thumb was so deformed and huge, and it said theology. And then, then the, the index finger was really long and bulging too, and it said uh, programs or events, and the others went through, and the, the pinky was real tiny and off to the side, and it said prayer. We're typically deformed in our will to work and our will to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We're mutated in our priorities. Consider the Master and learn from Him. I think it was uh, over a year ago we did a three-part series on the prayers of Jesus, riffing on a passage out of Hebrews. In the days of His flesh, Jesus made Petitions with loud cries and tears, and he was heard because of his obedience, uh, because of his reverence. He learned obedience through what he suffered. We need to learn from him. And note that the disciples asked him to teach them after they saw him pray. In a way, I think it summons us to set an example for others as well. Our prayers should therefore be contagious. So what does he teach them? We're going to focus a little bit on this thing. He said to them, when you pray, we shouldn't be legalistic about this. The majority of our time is going to be spent in the actual Lord's Prayer as we go through that. And we'll just summarize uh, the the stories and illustrations given at the end, verses 5 through 13. But we should understand that we shouldn't be legalistic about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, You don't have to say these exact words. You don't have to even pray in this exact order. Consider this as a framework, if you will. 
Consider it as a framework for what to pray for rather than a statement of exactly what to say. If you're at a loss for words, like we often are in prayer, this is a good place to start, either Luke's version or Matthew's version. But you don't have to say these exact words. And it's easy to prove that because of all the apostles who were here hearing Jesus say, teach them how to pray this way, none of the prayers recorded in the New Testament follow this exact pattern or include every element. But the framework, the, the main ideas, the goals of this prayer are present in almost every prayer recorded in the New Testament. This is a guide, and it tells us the kinds of things we should pray for and the things that we should prioritize in praying for when we pray. So let's examine the words of our Lord. Father, hallowed be your name. And he he just starts with his first word, Father. Remember, as we were talking about with the Gospel and last week with adoption, you need to remember your status as an adopted child. And of course, he's saying this before the inauguration of the New Covenant in his blood. However, for us who are in the New Covenant, reading this, we should understand that the basis of our ability to approach him and to petition him as Father is something secured for us by the miraculous working of God, by his Spirit, giving us the spirit of adoption, qualifying us as sons and daughters of God through faith. This is how Paul says it in Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You can't say Father and expect any kind of answer unless you've been adopted. With one exception, and we'll see that at the end. So what is the essence of this prayer? Most of you, I would wager, don't go around using the word hallowed very often. There's a list of biblical words that you can just throw into your conversation to maybe try to impress your friends, and hallowed, or hallowed, as they used to say it, is one of them. So what does this mean? The request is essentially this. May your name be hallowed. And that means, may your name be revered. May your name be guarded and respected and loved more than any other name. It says, The Father gives Jesus the name that is above every name, so He wants everyone, everywhere, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth to bow at the name of Jesus. That's that's the sense or the feel of what we should desire towards God's name. And In biblical terms, the name stands for the reputation, namesake, glory, or fame. Name in some ways just stands for the person. Understand this, God cannot become any more holy than He already is. That's impossible. But what can happen is that people, angels and humans alike, can revere His name more. People, like you and me, can make His name holy to us. We can see it and respect His name as holy that in, the, in a way that corresponds to the way that He Himself is holy. That's what this Prayer is for. And I would say, going back to what we were talking about, of if there's a Lord of the universe who is there, He deserves all our honor, all our reverence, all our worship, all our love. This is what He deserves from all of us. He deserves that we would make His name hallowed. We should sanctify His name. Understand this. You can't give anything to Him 
You may think of your relationship to the Lord like this. Kind of like quid pro quo. I'll do something for you, Lord, if you'll respond in prayer to me. I think even as Christians, we fall back into that way of thinking. If you're real good, if you knock it out of the park with your discipleship objectives and you read your Bible a lot and you pray a lot, if I line my life up like that, then God's going to answer me. But here's what Paul says in Romans 11. Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You can't give anything to God as a gift that deserves repayment in the most ultimate sense. But even you, even me, redeemed sinners, can revere his name. You can set His name, His glory, His fame, His person apart in your life as holy. We can desire that His fame and glory extend to all the earth. And our weakness is seen in the fact that we can't do it on our own. We're praying that God would do this in our lives. So we revere His name to a certain level to even pray that His name would be revered and hallowed. And we're asking God to do that more. This is the first thing on our church prayer list that everything that is done would be to the glory of God. This statement, Father, hallowed be your name, is in some way a heading for the rest of the prayer. How is it that we should want God to be glorified? And how should that desire influence the things we pray for? There are several bad examples that we could give to talk about ways that we might want God to be glorified that He's not necessarily glorified in. There are whole segments of church in the U.S. that are built on premises that say, well, God is glorified when His people are healthy and wealthy and happy. Many other bad examples could be given. And even though it's easy to lambast the prosperity gospel, we should think in ourselves, are we... Are we making it a convoluted process? We, we say, and we maybe acknowledge with our lips that we want God to be glorified, but then we begin praying for things that have nothing to do with the glory of God. Or our thinking and asking them has nothing to do with the glory of God. It might not be a Ferrari, but it could be anything else. So, Answering the question, I think this is how the rest of the prayer flows. How should we want His name to be hallowed, guarded, respected, glorified? He says, Your kingdom come. Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. I think they essentially mean the same thing, but this is the first and foremost way that we should want God's name to be hallowed for God to receive glory. And I think we, for the most part, intuitively understand what this means, at least in part. We don't have time to drill down at length on the kingdom of God in full. There are many, many things that I want right now to say about the kingdom of God. But here's what this means. May your rule and authority and reign be fully established. May your purposes come to fruition. May the final end for which you created the world be seen and known and enjoyed. This is how Peter tells the people to pray in Acts chapter 2, verse 
uh, chapter 3, verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. This may seem simple enough to pray for God's kingdom to come. But remember, Jesus is teaching. He's teaching the disciples to pray actively for this. So what is He teaching? I think what He's doing is giving us a reminder because most of our prayers can have as its end our kingdoms. The establishment and the longevity and the protection and the increase of our own castles. Further, I think it's possible to even ask for the right things, but not be asking for the Lord's kingdom, but for ours. This is how James says it. You, you have not because you ask not. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. He's not saying you ask for the wrong things. He's saying you may be asking for the right things, genuine things, but you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So the thing that you're asking for may be something that the Lord could use for His kingdom, but you're thinking in your mind, it'll be for me. This is why, in God's grace, He does not answer so many of our prayers, even if they are legitimate requests. Do you understand that? There's no other way to to read that text in James, I don't think, that, that you have not because you ask not, and you ask and do not receive. Why? Not because you're asking for sinful things, because you ask to spend it on your passions. Even things that are legitimate requests, God will, in His mercy, refuse to answer because your mindset and your heart is set on them as idolatry. And He's not going to help you be a better idolater. Sadly, I think we, the, the general we, would be happy if we just lived a good life in good health with relatives who loved us, who were also in good health, with respectable kids who had a good education in a place that was relatively peaceful. The problem is, while each of those things are good in and of themselves, those constitute social conservatism and the American dream and not the kingdom of God. You know why you should shift your desires and pray and be more concerned about the coming of the kingdom of God instead of your own kingdom? Because it's better for you. It is far, far better for you. So what if God answers your request for health and wealth and prosperity and the establishment of your own kingdom and things that are just generally any Gentile would want? So what if He answers all that? We're still in a cursed world. You still have a death problem. We'll still stand before God and answer for every single thing we've done. Every idle thought. Every word and deed. We still live in a world that is under the power of the enemy. Cursed and doomed to be burned with the fire of God's wrath at the end of the age. That's the reality we live in. So what are you praying for? What's what's the best thing to pray for? What are the best things to pray for in a world like that? Yes, it would be nice to be healthy and have a nice house and to live in a land that is peaceful and have all the leaders that we would want perfectly, but it would be better for the kingdom of God to come and to be established. That's what this world needs. That He may send the Christ, Jesus, appointed for you. 
Verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. If you have the ESV, it says in a footnote, or our bread for tomorrow. So nonetheless, even in view of the priority that we should have for the kingdom of God, and needing it to come and desiring it to come and His name to be hallowed, yet even under that heading, we still have needs. And there are a few challenges with this request in in being honest as the people of God and actually praying these types of prayer. I think on the one hand, we may make it too broad where we feel like we have to be burdened and pray for every single little thing. Or, I think more dangerously, we pray for things that are not really daily bread. Uh, Things that you don't really need. Things that might be nice, but not daily bread. We can be like the Israelites in the wilderness, and God is sending them their daily bread, manna from heaven, literally. And they're just upset, and they want meat. They want melons and cucumbers. It's hilarious. We, we, we make fun of them sometimes because of their unbelief, but our prayers sound a lot like, give us quail and melons and cucumbers, instead of, give us today our daily bread. As Paul says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Is that you? Or we don't even pray that way at all. We're just anxious about them, right? We haven't even made the transition where we're not being anxious and praying for everything that is a a desire of our hearts or, or bringing them to the Lord in prayer to cast off our anxieties. We're just anxious about them. We think that intuitively God should know the anxieties of my heart and He knows what I need and He should give them to me. We're not humbling ourselves to pray for our daily bread. And I think we can make this too small. In Matthew's version, it sounds more like just give us today the bread we need for today. But I think Luke's version broadens it out, broadens the perspective out a little bit. Give us today the bread for tomorrow and the way the ESV renders it. Give us each day our daily bread. So the person praying this is looking into the future. It's not wrong to, to, to have an anticipation of the days that come. Planning ahead is not a sin. And he's praying, each day, Lord, be faithful to us, take care of us, and give us the things we really need. That's the perspective. He's not getting ahead of himself in his prayer. He's just praying, from today, my perspective is that, Lord, please be faithful in providing what we actually need between now and either when you return or take us home. Thirdly, I think we just forget to ask a small, simple prayer like this. Maybe we feel it's unspiritual, right? Prayer should be reserved for, for cancer and, and the ICU and, and the child who has fallen away and, and our neighbor to be saved. But I think it's sort of like the, you know, in the story of Elijah and the Syrian or he was offended because Elijah wouldn't come out and talk to him. He just said, go, go bathe yourself in the Jordan. He said, there, there are better rivers in, in Syria. Why can't I just go and do that there? Well, humbling yourself before God is one of the keys, I think, of his purposes towards you. And how we pray is a cross-section. It's a test, a quality measure of our degree of Humility. If we're not praying for our daily bread, I think it shows that in some way we've presumed and think that we've got the daily bread portion taken care of. We'll pray for the bigger stuff. 
Maybe we just think we don't really need to. In our minds, why should we pray for the next meal if the food's already in the pantry? Why should we pray to be able to meet the mortgage payment if the money's already in the bank? In the words of Rich Mullins, friends, we are not as strong as we think we are. Life is fragile. Everything breaks so easily. God often works in a way to bring us low, causing us to pray and graciously answering us so that we will grow in our faith and trust Him and have gratitude towards Him. That has happened several times in the life of this church where we've come against things that were bigger than us and and no money in the bank or no food in the pantry could meet the need. And we came together and we prayed fervently with many tears and Kleenex boxes. And the Lord was faithful to answer. And that doesn't mean that He always will answer in the exact way that we want, but the Lord is actively at work to bring us to points of humility where we will have more often the posture of give us today our daily bread, or give us each day our daily bread. Verse 4, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Our greatest need as sinners against a holy God is forgiveness from the very God that we have sinned against. And I want to, in a way, resolve a tension here. There is tension in the text. As a Christian, you might look at a prayer to forgive us for our sins and say, well, I thought I was already forgiven at the cross or forgiven in real time when I trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. I thought that was for past, present, and future sins. I want to be very careful here. But there is no forgiveness where there is no repentance and asking for forgiveness. If your attitude is proud and not thinking that you need God's forgiveness, not having the posture of the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, then there is no real forgiveness. Not like you've got to keep yourself saved. It's that a genuinely saved person has that posture of, Lord, forgive me for these sins. As they come up, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Someone who believes that they are a Christian who is not praying in earnest to the Lord for forgiveness for sins, but rather presuming on the grace of God in Christ on the cross is likely, likely not born again. As you become more mature in the faith, you will see just how much forgiveness you really need in real time. Your sin will become bigger and bigger to you, and maybe the sins of others and the problems in the world will become smaller and smaller in your perspective. Your greatest need is forgiveness from the very God you have sinned against. And it's interesting that this prayer is the only one given here with, uh, that is phrased in the conditional. It's, it's given with a ground he uses the word for. It's, it's very important when you read your Bible to, to, to pay attention when that word for is used. Especially in the New Testament, it is grounding what is said prior. And I think if you or I were writing this prayer, I think we would write it something like this. Forgive us our sins, for we plead your mercy. Or forgive us our sins, for we are but dust. Forgive us our sins, for you are gracious and forgiving. 
That would be appealing to something in God as the basis for His forgiveness towards us. But that's not what we find in this prayer. It's counterintuitive in that way. The ground of the appeal for request for forgiveness is something in us. This is hard to get around. Because it's enforced by parables from Jesus and other places. And I think the hard truth is this. If you will not forgive others, neither will God forgive you. Matthew 18, 32-35, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered them him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There are some who try to explain this away and say, well, you're eternally forgiven, but there's a relational reconciliation part of this. I don't buy that. You can't convince me that this is not a judgment day context. And I think the deeper truth is this. The grace of God in Christ being applied to your heart and understanding and knowing how much you've been forgiven will result in you being a forgiving person. It won't be easy. But your desire towards God is give me the strength, increase my faith that I may be forgiven, uh, forgiving towards my brothers and sisters because we know how much we've been forgiven. Think of it this way. The sin, the persistent sin of unforgiveness If you persist in that sin, you will show that you were never converted, just like any other sin. Paul gives that list. Neither will the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the greedy, nor the swindlers. Nor any, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He could have included on that list the unforgiving. Any sin will damn you if you hold on to it instead of Christ. So let us pray for God's forgiveness. Let us plead with Him to forgive us our sins constantly on the basis of the blood of Christ, to be sure, but also keeping in step step with that forgiveness in our own lives. And he says, and lead us not into temptation. I'll take this as an opportunity to reflect and express thankfulness to the Lord that the gospel in full submission to God's word was won back from the darkness of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. And we've been living in that light ever since. And a recent example of that darkness, of that shroud that still persists, is when the Pope decided that this wording of this prayer was unacceptable. This is from 2019 from The Guardian. Pope Francis has risked the wrath of traditionalists by approving a change to the wording of the Lord's Prayer. Instead of saying, lead us not into temptation, it will now say, do not let us fall into temptation. The new wording was approved by the General Assembly of the Episcopal Conference of Italy, over which the Pope presides. So, you can just change what the Word of God says if you don't like it. And the reason that they felt the need to change it is because the words in Greek are really straightforward. Uh, There's no wiggling out of what you think it means. 
It means, Lord, do not lead or bring us into any temptation. Or to paraphrase, Lord, do not bring us into a situation or a mindset where we are tempted to sin. Is that not difficult? What do we pray instead, usually? I mean, before we lambast the Pope, uh, let's consider, do we ever pray something like this? Lead us not into temptation? I think we pray other things. Make us strong to endure the temptation. Change our desires. Give us a way out. All very biblical. Give us wisdom to avoid it. Change our desires so that we're not tempted at all. Those are all good. But what about cutting it off at the root and saying, Lord, lead us not into temptation? The Lord does not tempt us Himself. But if we walk in pride then you can have confidence that the Lord will ensure, will remind us just how much we need His help to live a life pleasing to Him. You can be confident in this prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation. You don't need to be fearful that He will not listen to us. A few things to help make this clear. God is sovereign. He does not tempt anyone When we are tempted, we are led away by our own desires, but God is sovereign and He can providentially ordain your steps and hand you over to the dictates of your own pride and flesh and allow the enemy to sift you like wheat. Or you can humbly acknowledge your absolute dependence on Him and ask Him to act on your behalf and lead you not into temptation. Brothers and sisters, these are the things we need to be praying for. If we understood the priority of sin, I've used this illustration before, maybe not in this setting. You remember the disciples caught in the storm and Jesus is asleep on the cushion in the back of the boat? And they're freaking out. Jesus is asleep. They're overestimating the danger of a storm. And they could have all died. They're overestimating the danger of the storm and underestimating Jesus' power and His love for them. Do you not care for us? Let's fast forward maybe a year or so. And they're all in the garden. There's no storm. Jesus tells them, pray that you may not enter temptation. And they are the ones who fall asleep. Because they underestimated the danger of temptation and sin. And he's there praying his life out, quite literally. For his sake and the sake of all of us. And now, we're given two pictures, really three, depending on how you count. Two images are given to us uh, by Jesus to fill out our imagination and expectations in prayer. He also presses against, I think, small thinking when it comes to prayer. Let's look at them again. There's the impudence of prayer in verses 5-8. through And he said to them, which of you who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, for the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, or some translations may render it persistence 
bold, maybe even rude persistence, he will get up and give, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So how are we to take this? Why is Jesus giving us the story? I think he unfolds the meaning of it later, but I don't think the, the next verses contain everything that we're supposed to take from this. It's interesting, every time Jesus teaches about prayer, he teaches by contrast. We looked at the parable of the persistent widow last week. You have an unjust judge, and she keeps coming and asking for justice against her adversary. And finally, because she doesn't give up asking, he doesn't care about justice and doesn't fear God or man, and he finally answers because she hasn't given up. There's this impudence, this, this persistence, this, this something that for a human to receive this type of persistence would be seen as being rude. And so I come to this question, and we're, we spent the majority of our time on the Lord's Prayer, so we're kind of summarizing these stories, these images. Is it possible to have impudence in prayer? Is it possible to be rudely persistent in prayer? Maybe, but only if you're asking for illegitimate things. If you're asking for things that are legitimate, there is no possibility that your requests ever border on rude persistence or impudence. Not if you're praying for good things, things that are needed, things we are commanded to pray for. If you just prayed, if your prayer life were nothing but the things that we are commanded either by example or explicit imperative to pray for in the New Testament, it would sound like impudence, like presumption. Some of the things we're commanded to pray for or give an example of praying for are just otherworldly. I'll give you an example. This is more an interpretation of his own Prayer, Ephesians 3, 20-21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I think we, we just hedge our bets in the way that we pray. We think, well, God's, God won't answer the big prayers, so we'll, we'll dial it down a little bit and pray for the things that maybe He'll be more likely to answer. I think that is rude towards a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Do you believe that you've been given access through adoption to such a God? Even a friend whose kids are already asleep And as a parent of three young children, I know how valuable that is. Even a friend whose kids are already asleep will get up and give bread to a friend who keeps knocking. So how how much more your Heavenly Father? That's the point of this story. You can't really bother Him. You get that? Unless you're persisting in sin and praying for things that are sinful and praying wrongly to spend it on your passions, if if you're praying something legitimate and your desire is, Lord, your kingdom come, you cannot bother Him. Doesn't matter how big and how expansive the prayer is. 
able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So you can even just pray that. Lord, do. Please do. Please show us that you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we have asked or think. And, and as far as you press that, like imagine all the prayers that Paul prayed. We're going to see one of them in our benediction. But these, these are otherworldly, uh, age-transversing prayers, meaning the ages, Right? And he prays for them and he says, God's able to do far more abundantly even than that beyond your imagination. We'll be confident. And this is what the next image or episode is showing us, I think. Verses 9 through 13. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. If you're following along on the notes, my, my interpretation of this and the way that we should take it is to confidently ask for God's best. This is more instruction by comparison, right? The, the same thing we've seen. You know, you've got a friend, you've got an unjust judge, and now you have fathers who are evil, he says. And I think this is, this is more of a statement. He says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you, shall, you will find, knock and it will be open. Then he gives an illustration with fathers as the comparison to prove the point. And I think the theological point here is pretty clear, but we have trouble with it because of how often it is abused. Because people take it out of context and just say, well, just ask for anything and God's going to give you. If you have enough faith and you ask, God's going to give it to you. But we should not let abuses make us think differently about God. Jesus is clearly seeking to help us have a positive disposition towards prayer. Obviously, we need to pray for the right things. Obviously, we need to pray for the right heart. But don't let abuses of a passage like this make you pray less. Because God says, seek and you will find. Ask and it will be given. I think sometimes as we address abuses, we'll say, yeah, but. Or, he didn't really mean that. If we pray for the right things in the right manner, we can reasonably expect God to answer our prayers. Not always in the framework that we want. Not always in the way we want. Not always in the timeline we want. And the answer may be no. But you can reasonably expect, insofar as we pray according to His will, as expressed in Scripture, that He will answer our requests. Or else prayer is nothing. What does it actually do if God doesn't answer? And if His appeal is, ask me, like like a son asks a father. Why wouldn't we pray if He has created this relationship and now given us the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Father, If I may put it so basically, I think the point is this. Ask, and ask rightly, and the Lord will answer. 
Again, may not look like you want it to look in the exact manner of unfolding and manner of, un- of answering that you want. But the Lord is faithful. And the point of the illustration of this is this. Who's a better father? You who are evil or your heavenly father? If you know how to give your kid a, a, a piece of food, something to eat, nourishment, and you know not to give him a snake or a scorpion when he asks for that, how much more does your father know how to give you his best? And that is where this story leads. Because notice what he says in verse 13 at the end. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is, this is so amazing. There is nothing better that the Father can give you than His Holy Spirit. Jesus Himself even says, it is better for you that I go away so that the Helper will come. We need to talk about this because He says, the Heavenly Father. He doesn't say your Heavenly Father. And He just says to those who ask Him, not for the believers or followers of Me to ask Him. Anyone. Understand, even if you haven't already been put in a situation where you're adopted adopted of God, you can pray to Him as your Heavenly Father. If you ask the Father, for the Holy Spirit, for the gift of conversion, for the gift of faith, and to receive His life-giving Spirit into your heart, the very best thing that He can give you, the answer is yes. And for us who are believers, we, we may think that, well, this prayer isn't very impressive because I've already received the Holy Spirit. But understand, even as Paul prayed that believers would come to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we believers may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what he's saying he will answer for you. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So do you feel ever that you need to grow in your love towards God, towards neighbor? Towards brother and sister? I hope the answer is yes. And he's saying those who pray for the Holy Spirit, the answer is yes. Maybe not at the rate we would like in growing in spiritual maturity. And I think part of that is to show us our dependency. If we were sanctified immediately in the sense that Paul speaks of, I don't think we would be very humble people or we would war against the Spirit in pride. And part of the point is that we would have a posture towards God is that He is the giver of all good gifts. He is the one who gives the Spirit. And as we ask patiently and fervently for God's very best, He will be faithful to give it. As a church, we seek to try to prioritize prayer in our Sunday night prayer meetings. Start around 4.30, we probably get to praying around 5. Sometimes we switch it around and pray after eating. But as a, a pastor that I, I listened to recently said, brothers, if we're not praying, what are we doing? We try to pray in our discipleship groups, groups of four, three, two, five men or women. We pray for each other specifically. In our growth groups, we prioritize prayer. Hopefully you're praying in your families, praying with your children before they go to sleep. 
praying over meals, praying with your spouse. Hopefully I haven't told you anything this morning that you didn't already know about prayer. Hopefully this is stirring you up by way of reminder. Brothers and sisters, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Father, thank You for Your grace towards us that You have qualified us to ask anything in the name of Your Son. Even for Your Holy Spirit to be given. Your very best. And You have committed Yourself to answer. Help us stand in awe of Your grace that even a ruined rebel who is still a sinner this day can pray for the Lord to give Your Holy Spirit. And the answer will be yes. Strengthen us this day in our resolve. Strengthen us this day in our boldness. Help us not be rude towards Your grace and, and diminishing the significance of prayer and diminishing the things that we pray for because we doubt. Help us be reminded always, especially the men and fathers in this room, that You are a better Father than we are. Give us grace to ask and to ask rightly. Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our bread each day. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. In Jesus' name, amen.